and welcome to episode 34 of that 60s recording podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. This episode is a an interesting one. I had an opportunity to have this conversation with uh, Alan Hyatt of PMI Audio Group, and uh, it's not usually the, the sort of thing I would be interested in, but I looked him up and I thought this is a really unique opportunity to get a bit of an insight into a side of the industry that we don't really see. So PMI Audio Group um, owns Toft Audio, Trident Audio, uh, Joe Meek, uh, the compressors that you, you'll all have seen <laughs> tons of around, um, and Tonalux, who a new company making some really great gear. Um, so yeah, it's a really interesting insight into the way that that all came about, the way that he, he got Toft Audio and all that kind of thing. And I thought that would be really interesting off the back of the conversation that I had in Mal- with Malcolm in uh, previous episodes. Um, so that was the reason for this. You'll notice that he uh, he's a smooth-talking New Yorker. He's definitely got the gift of the gab. And uh, he talks us through some of the sort of trials and tribulations of um, of the, the sort of manufacturing and distribution side of the industry how we ended up uh, uh, sort of having these companies um, and also dissects a little bit of marketing jargon which was an interesting side of things um, I thought so yeah uh, it's slightly different to usual but bear with it I really enjoyed this conversation and I, I really do think that you will he's um, he's a really great guy and he's a really fantastic storyteller um, so yeah, it's a really cool conversation. <laughs> this first episode is a little bit longer than the second one because he, as you'll see, he talks so much that I, I couldn't find a good place to stop it. Um, so I just let this one run for 45 minutes or so and then the next episode will be uh, be a little bit shorter. So anyway, here we go. Alan Hyatt. Okay, so I am really privileged to be joined here by Alan Hyatt all the way from uh, Hawaii. <laughs> so uh, it's it's early in the morning. Uh, so thank you so much for speaking to me and, and taking time out of your day. Oh, um, mahalo. You're quite welcome. <laughs> so you are uh, so best known as the founder and CEO of PMI Audio Group, um, who uh, sort of sell and manufacture brand names, uh, Trident Audio, Toft Audio Designs, uh, Joe Meek, Tonalux, Valley People, Studio Projects. And that's probably how people know you now. Obviously, you've had a very long career. That's correct. Yeah. So I, I've obviously, in, in my research, I, I want to go right, the, I want to start off by going right the way back to, to sort of gr- sure. growing up in the, in the 60s and what, what your experiences of music were in your sort of high school years and what you were listening to and what you were into and that kind of stuff. Well, again, thank you for having me. I really appreciate this is a great opportunity and, I, and I'm really pleased to be able to do this. Um, I, I was born and I grew up and I was fortunate to be born and to grow up in New York. <laughs> I mean, such a great iconic place for music and just all kinds of things. Plus, I grew up in a very different time than most people are used to today. You know, we used to leave our keys in a car in the driveway. We would never lock off front door. I mean, things were just very different then. But for me, as a, as a kid, I was always into music because my sister, who was five years older than me, 
she had her record player and she was, you know, Bill Haley and the Comets were coming on. You know, you had Jerry Lee Lewis, you had uh, Little Richard. Uh, suddenly the, you know, pre-Motown, you know, the Temptations, the Four Tops, Mary Wells, a uh, 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 Jackie Wilson, you know, a uh, James Brown, all these artists. So I would, when she was away and not around, I would like down the records and I'd start listening to it. And I was, I was really influenced by this music. Um, I was really only playing the accordion at the time at the <laughs> behest of my parents, you know, <laughs> You will play an instrument, son. Okay, well, can I choose? No, you will play this. Okay. So, and so I would tinker on my little accordion, trying to overdub it and stuff. And then as time moved forward a little bit, you know, you started seeing some, you know, new new genres come around. And, you know, the beginning of the surf culture with Dick Dale, uh, the Ventures, Jan and Dean. Hits from the UK started coming in. Joe Meek, okay? <laughs> yeah. In fact, it was one of the big influences for me to switch to guitar was Telstar. Oh, cool. And all of a sudden, it, I, I, was, I remember I'm listening on the radio. The songs are going, and all of a sudden, this song comes on, and it's like, Starts at the slow thing, and it starts building and building and building <laughs> into this thing. And it was so loud. How did it get so loud? I didn't turn up the volume. And then they had this little interlude in the song, little break where this beautiful shimmering guitar came on. I said, that's it. That's my instrument. How do you get that sound? How do you accomplish this? So I started taking guitar lessons and, and stuff like that. And I, I would go everywhere as a, as a young kid, maybe I was 13, 14 years old. I was going uptown to into Harlem at the Apollo theater. Okay. And I was probably the only white boy in the building, you know, me and my friend. Yeah. And we would sit and we would sit in the back row, but I would Jackie Wilson's playing. Let's go see them. You know, it was so exciting. You know, the, I remember seeing the Beach Boys in this New York place. But I mean, you know, the village, the the clubs, the, there was so much music going around at the time, as I'm sure it was in London in the in the early 60s that was mm -hmm. going on. So it was a it was a good place for music. And I got really influenced by that. And then as it got into the mid and later 60s, well, of course, things changed. The, the, you know, the, the San Francisco bands, uh, Strawberry Alarm Clock, Jefferson Star, you know, I mean, you know, the Allman Brothers, Delaney and Bonnie, and all these great magical bands. And the influence of the UK scene, the Beatles, the Who, I mean, you know, Led Zeppelin, all these amazing <laughs> bands between America and stuff just drove me crazy. So I became a guitar player. And in my time, I formed a lot of bands. And, you know, we had some degree of success. You know, we opened up for Jay Giles. We opened up for Yes. Oh, wow. Um, so, we, you know, I had some success, but uh, we just uh, weren't quite the level. And I eventually knew that 
my dreams of being the rock and roll star were not going to pan out. So I had to start thinking of what else am I going to do? Yeah. So then, I, I mean, <laughs> I was looking on your um, your your LinkedIn info, and I love how you've just summed it up as bands and good times. This is sort of the early seventies, <laughs> and that sounds like what you're describing. <laughs> it, it, it it was you know it was amazing. I remember on Second Avenue, the the Fillmore East, Bill Graham's theater. I mean, you know, by then we had uh, my parents had moved to the suburbs on uh, in Long Island, and to get there, we weren't quite driving just yet, so we would hop the Long Island Railroad and we would go into the into the uh, city. We'd go to the village first to eat sausage and pepper sandwiches in the little kiosks that they had, and you know we would try and score some mind altering libations. <laughs> um, and back then, the people walking around Greenwich Village, as they pass you by, they'd flip open their coat. You know, and they'd have an array of stuff. Now, of course, 99% of the time, whatever you'd buy, it was like oregano or something. We were just young teenagers, you know, just. But going to the Fillmore and seeing the band's $2.75 to go see a show, you know, and uh, yeah, it was just amazing. Unknown bands who I thought were killer. There was a band I remember. couple of bands that really stick out. One was called Bafalongo, and they were actually the backup band for Joni Mitchell. Oh, wow. uh, As I understand it. Um, And they opened a a show at the Fillmore, and they were just such a phenomenal band. And this one band out of Florida called Hammer, who just blew my mind. Uh, and you know, so many of these bands, they never went anywhere. They, you know, it was easy to get a deal back then from a label because if you were a band and you were good and you had some reasonable material and you could impress them, they would sign you. And the reason why they would sign you is because if their AR guy didn't sign you and you became good and made it they would be angry with you for not signing that band. (laughs) So back in the sixties, it was really easy to get a deal. But when you really look back on it, what was the deal? You signed your life away. They owned it. They owned you. You had to pay for your studio time. They had to pay everything back. You know, you were never going to make any money unless you became really big. And then you renegotiated your contract. Well, that wasn't me. (laughs) So, (laughs) Did but you do any phenomenal. record? Was there any recording happening at that time for you? Do you remember any of? Uh, well, in the early days, like I said, I was in the studio recording albums that you know either got released on a local level or didn't get released. Singles, especially, I always mm-hmm. hated that doing this one commercial tune that the producers and people said you got to do this <laughs> so we can put this on the radio because that we can't put on the radio. And back then, AM, AM radio, you know, was was the prominent media, you know, till FM, late night FM. Then anything went, you know, during that time. But, um, yeah, I did some recording on the backside. But every time, as soon as it was, oh, oh I'd, I'd run right into the control room looking at this thing. <laughs> oh, he's turning these knobs. Oh, he, what is this? How is that done? So I started asking questions. And uh, one of the engineers, uh, who was a really nice man, Joe Esposito, said, look, 
you know, you want to learn, you know, come on down, you know, when, when you have time. And so I wasn't working. I was in the band. So, you know, during the week, I jumped down into the city. Uh, I, I, you know, you know, oh, yeah, I got the coffee, got the sandwiches, just like you guys used to call the tea boys in the UK. <laughs> That's right. I, yeah, okay. I was I was the coffee guy, you know, and, <laughs> and clean this, do that. But eventually it led up, and I and that's where I basically learned. But I really didn't take to it as a, as an occupation because I, I, I didn't care sitting up late, 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 3 o'clock in the morning, having these people who were in a studio telling you what they wanted or what they thought thought you should be doing for them, you know, and I, that's not for me. So I had to, you know, find other means and I did. <laughs> so uh, how, so P PMI audio group was formed in 79. Is that correct? Yes. Around then. So what happened between sort of you finishing up band time and, and then moving into a sort of more business side of things? Well, you know, the band thing uh, that I, thought was going to make it, didn't make it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, this producer named um, uh, Porky Abdo, okay. uh, who was, a, uh, I, the name escapes me, but I'm going to, I'm going to try and remember the name throughout this conversation. To bring <laughs> yeah. this up. There was a UK band that came over and they were doing their tour and Porky was the, tour manager, road manager, assigned by the label for this act. And the band was really pretty good. But again, one of those stories had an album or two, just never really, unfortunately, made it. Um, and so he was working with a few guys, a couple of guys from Berkeley, Juilliard, and, and they wanted to put together, this was Corky's idea, some jazz influenced guys with a couple of rock guys all right so someone knew him who knew me and they contacted me and i met up with this other rock bass player this jazz drummer a jazz a keyboardist a, a sat a, jazz, a saxophonist and stuff and they tossed us in this room okay and say let's see what happens here so, you know, we got together and we started jamming around and they, you know, a little bit to see what happens. There was some interest. They sent us up to Massachusetts into this humongous home on a lake so that we were isolated so we could work. And so I was writing a lot of material and I wrote some stuff and they would jazz it up and we'd rock it up. And we were actually kind of a little bit fusion before fusion really ever started. <laughs> yeah. uh, but again, you know, Bands came and went. All of a sudden, uh, one of the guys got an offer from this band called the Grapes of Wrath, and boom, he left. And it broke up again. I moved out west. I had had it. And so once I moved out west, I, I thought I would still be able to play. Didn't So I really had to find my way. I went through a bunch of odd jobs here and then mm -hmm. until I, I would say in maybe 75, 1975, uh, I landed a job at this place uh, that sold hi-fi. And I found, as a New Yorker, with the gift of the New York street verbiage, if you will, <laughs> yeah. that I was a good salesman. And I could sell 
high fives. I quickly became the number one salesman, which led to management, which led me into dealing with manufacturers representatives. Mm -hmm. These were the guys that represented the brands of high five. And they would come into town and they would, you know, take you out to lunch, anything to get you to buy their goods. And so in Hi-Fi, we carried things like Shore phono cartridges. But the guy also sold Shore microphones. <laughs> and then there was a couple of other guys who repped some other lines who said, yeah, you know, I have these other things, but I don't know what to do with it. So as a guitar player, I was, I was interested. So they'd always end up at my house. We'd pull out all these toys. This was before Pro Audio really became Pro Audio. And so I got interested in that. And so um, a friend of mine who was working for me, at the hi-fi shop, went to work for this guy in California who was kind of just starting out the pro audio industry. And so he left for DBX to go work as a regional manager for DBX, which sold hi-fi noise reduction units, but they also sold compressors and enhancers for the pro industry. <laughs> Um, so that rep in California hired me. I loved it. I went over there. I'm working in, you know, so I had my little TAC 3340S and my little TAC mixer. And I was laying down tracks with all these things, thinking this was the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> and, um, I went to work for him and later, about a year later, I just, I was just looking and I said, you know what? I, I I didn't really care for the guy that much anyway. I said, I think I'm going to venture out on my own. And I did. So I started as being a manufacturer's representative. I've got a lot of lines like Allen and Heath, Lexicon, DBX, AKG, Kramer uh, Guitars, uh, all these lines. And I built a fairly successful company. And I was very fortunate because I was making a lot of money. But in the back of my head, I always said, you know, these companies are going to change the deal here pretty soon. I'm sure the accountant, when he takes his pen and signs this check to me and the other reps, he's going, why are we paying that kind of money to these people? <laughs> and so I looked for an alternative. So I started distributing. And before that, I was known as AMH Sales. And in 79, I started PMI Audio. What does PMI stand for? I lived in a town called Palos Verdes, which was on this peninsula, Peninsula Marketing and Import Company, uh. PMI for short. So I started importing this, these lines. I started with this company called Electrospace, a Brit, Francis Williams, worked for Neve, um, then designed his own things. Um, I was interested. I said, well, you know, look, I'm a rep. Here's what I do, but I'm starting this and maybe I could distribute your stuff throughout the entire North, South and Central America. And he was, yeah, gung ho, go for it, go for it. And I did, and I did well. The only problem was everything started coming back and failing in the field <laughs> because his power supply design was really bad and it took down the regulators, which took out the chips I lost a lot of money on that deal. Then I remember importing a, a keyboard stand manufacturer from Italy. And I 
sent them all the money. They shipped everything in. By the time I got it, all the welds were bad and they started rusting and all the legs broke off. I failed miserably. <laughs> so I was like pretty much at my wits end. And, and tell me if you press for time, because otherwise I'll just keep rambling. <laughs> no, you're fine. So I'm at, I'm at the NAMM show in 19 in the late 80s i guess it was maybe it wasn't late 80s maybe 85 84 85 so as i said my manufacturing rep company was still going my distribution company was taking place over a couple of years with these products that i just continued to fail on <laughs> and i was working i was repping for one company and I became friendly with one of the guys. And he said at this show, he came up to me. He says, Alan, I've got a guy. Uh, he's my roommate. His father is a guy named Malcolm Jackson. Maybe you've heard of Malcolm Jackson. Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. Malcolm Jackson was a studio guy and a purveyor of used studio gear in the UK. Very mm. blah, blah, blah. Just... He's selling this brand. It's something called something meek. I don't know what it is. <laughs> he says, you ought to come and see it and check it out. Now, of course, with my two failures, here's another UK offering I'm going. <laughs> so I you know, just, he was insistent. So I said, oh, okay. What's the booth number and what time? Okay. I'll see you then. I did not show up. The next, the next day at the show, he comes back again. What happened? What happened? Oh, you know, I got busy at the booth and I, I really couldn't make it. And I'm sorry, the time went by. All right, uh, how's today? Uh, okay, I'll, I'll be there. I didn't show up. The next day, the same thing. On the last day of the show, the fourth day of the show, he comes to this. By then, I had also added Sony Professional Audio as a line that I was repping in my rep firm. And so I was at the Sony booth and, you know, then we were selling big consoles and, you know, 24 and 48 track dash machines and headphones and processors and all this stuff. And so I'm at the booth and I'm talking to someone and out of the corner of my eye, I see this guy standing there with his arms folded. And I really wasn't acknowledging him. I just kept it. But that kid stood there and stood there and stood there. He was so persistent. So I finally went over to the guy and said, all right, okay, all right, let's go. So he drags me to this booth, had no carpeting, no signs, no anything, just a table with this small little wooden rack. And in it, the most, what I thought at the time was the most ugliest piece of gear I have ever seen. <laughs> Amazing. This bright green thing. And I'm and 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 in my mind, I'm going, the model's gotta be the thing. It's called thing, you know. <laughs> like, and so I was rude. Uh I did apologize after, but I was, you know, I really I didn't want any of this. But he brought me up. And Malcolm Jackson, he introduces me to Malcolm. I'm talking to Malcolm. And we're talking, it ended up, we knew a lot of the same people in the industry. And he seemed like a nice enough guy. And then he says, well, we're doing the blah, 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 blah. So let me introduce you to this gentleman, Ted Fletcher. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
So I shake his hand and he goes, well then, okay. I go, stop. He goes, pardon me? Looking at my watch. I go, wait a minute. Hold on, just another three seconds. Hold on. You've got two minutes. Are you ready? Go. <laughs> I was really rude. I was hoping he'd say, move along, get out of here. You know? yeah. <laughs> so he goes, two minutes. Okay, well, well then. Blah, 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 blah. He has the CD and a pair of headphones. So I put the pair of headphones on, hit play, and I engage this device, which was the Joni Gessi two stereo compressor. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, in, out, in, out, in, out. I didn't want to show too much emotion, but it sounded like really, really good. Yeah. I said, so I said, so where's all the other equipment? Because back then, you know, DBX compressors sounded like this. You know, all of a sudden there's this compressor, like, you know, the LA2, the optical type compressor that's just magic instead of the VCA based. And he goes, no, nothing here. Come around, take a look. So I look. And I go, well, you know what? I have to admit, this sounds pretty good. So how much is this? Well, we don't have a final price yet. I go, so what do you want me to do with this? Well, we're hoping that you would be interested in, you know, buying and representing the line. Go, you know, I, I don't even know how much it is. You don't know how much it is. <laughs> I said, but to be honest with you, I don't know if I'm interested. And here's why. And I explained my past history. But I said, if you want, as a favor to my friend, I'll take the unit. I'll bring it around to a couple of the guns in Hollywood. And they go, yeah, okay. And you can ship it back to us. So I took this. So the first thing I do is I take this unit up to my friend Jay Baumgardner's place. And um, so I walk in with the unit. I go, hey, Jay. Try this out, okay? Check it out. See what's going on with it. All right, let's put it on the bench. I go, nah, I don't want you to put it on the bench because I heard it on the bench. I said, I need to know what this is. Is really going to happen like on a track? You yeah, know? yeah. You're doing something now because yeah, I'm tracking this this band. We're 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 actually in the middle of doing some vocals. We got a couple of tracks in the can. So I go, okay. So now this happens to be NRG Studios, which was a very big studio in, in Los Angeles. So I leave him with the thing. And I says, ah, I'll be back in maybe five days, four days or so, just to see how it is. So I heard nothing. I said, well, thank God that meant it didn't blow up or burn down his <laughs> studio. So I remember pulling up to his studio. I go inside and I said, hey, Jay, how you doing? He goes, you know, I hate you. I go, oh, something did happen. What? He goes, well, I go, something happened? Do you not like it? Is it really bad? He goes, well, we used it on a track, like you said. We were doing some vocals, and we tracked it, and then we played it back. And it was so stinking good that the band wanted to re-record all the other vocal tracks that they did. <laughs> and I'm like, so what, what do you mean? That, that's a good thing. He goes, yeah, maybe for you. He says, but for me, I got a budget. This is what I have to come in at. Yeah. <laughs> all that time wasted you know amazing so it was like so what did it, that was hootie and the blowfish's first album oh wow wow so darius rucker was so taken with his voice on this se2 so i said okay well look i got 
says, you're not getting this back. <laughs> and I'm like, he goes, just send me the invoice. I go, I don't even know how much it costs. He says, I don't care. So I went back. I got in touch with Malcolm. Uh, we did, He said, well, it's 3750 US dollars, and your cost is this. So, all right. So I sent him an invoice. Came through. I said, all right. He said, so what do you want to do? I said, so you know what? I'll buy 10 units. I bought 10 units. I just took all 10 and started handing them. I went to A&M. I went to all the studios. I went to all the guys. Just dropped the gear off. Never got a one back. Bought it 20. All right. Started going to all the stores. Okay. Guitar Center, uh, everything audio, Westlake audio. The word started getting around about this show me stuff. Soul fruits. Now I figured I got something. So that, then I started advertising heavy and working with Ted closer to develop new products, new designs and everything else. And um, I would fly in, uh, you know, to England and meet with him and stay there at the factory for a week. And it exploded. Joe Meek became the number one compressor. I remember um, studio manager, um, can't think of, I, his name is Bob, but um, he'd kill me, but I'm forgetting his last <laughs> name right at the moment. But he called me up. They had like two SC2s in the room. You know, the producers wrote, because Alan, you got to help me out. Said, What's the matter? He says, they're fighting over the compressors. I, he says, I got three sessions going on. I only have two meeks. If I, I, I got to have another. So I would run up and I drop two more off of them. And the sales were going crazy. And, you know, of course, like with any product that lasts for X amount of time. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, it was interesting because here was, we were doing extremely well. I was probably 80% of Joe Meek's total sales. Wow. Uh, uh, I mean, it was, it was pretty interesting. And I'm not saying that to be, to be humble, but it's just the marketing was working. Everything was working. And of course they benefited from all that because all the magazines that were out, uh, it became popular there and they were doing the same thing. Um, and I kept telling him, I go, okay, so look, so now we're doing mic preamps, we're doing compressors, we're doing EQs, we're doing all this. We really need to do a microphone. And Ted was like, nah, I'm never going to do microphones. So that's when click, click, Studio Projects was created. Ah, okay, that's interesting. I, uh, I hadn't put two and two together there. <laughs> um, I want to just talk a little bit about that compressor. Because it's it was um, there's some really interesting uh, sort of uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for now um, writing. <laughs> there's a posh word for writing that I haven't I can't think of at the moment. <laughs> but it's anyway, okay. yeah. So uh, the the sort of information on the website about that compressor is is really interesting. It's stuff I hadn't realized either. It talks about the way that um, your ear works when you're listening to. Um, uh, listening to music and and it all makes complete sense and it 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 says to me that this compressor was bringing something completely new to the table that as you've mm -hmm. described with the uh, you know the popular compressors of that time that this was something quite different. 
Well, you know, <clears throat> um, how do I say this? Um, there was there was merit somewhere to all of that. Whether it was just hype, okay, <laughs> is another thing. Because remember, you had other optical compressors that sounded good. Yeah. So maybe a lot of people weren't aware or exposed to that product. But when you talked about, oh, this is the way the human ear leads, and psychoacoustically, these do this, it was a pair of optocells, matched optocells with two orange LEDs. Okay, you had a single pair of controls that worked stereo. When those opto cells responded, they generated a second order harmonic distortion. That was the offshoot from the process. Mm -hmm. Okay, so to me, I always thought after diving into it and looking at, is that it? Maybe that's what it's all about. You know, all this jargon that we're writing and marketing and promoting on. Well, maybe some of it has merit. Maybe some is just buzzword advertising, get the people interested. It's really hard technically because I'm not an electrical designer. No, of course, yeah. Okay, so I really can't speak to you with that type of background and know-how, you know, to combine circuits and start circuits. That's not my game. Um, but uh, I, over the period of time, developed enough you know, now one of the problems with that was when you would ship the compressors, uh, the, the opto was a little round cell and there was two leads coming out with a 90 degree bend and soldered into the board. They would shift a little bit. So you always had one side, maybe a dB and a half to three dB or more louder or softer than the other side. Mm -hmm. So to correct this, you always had to open it up score the glue of the black little magic box that people called it, lift it off and look at the cells. Then you'd have to run a, a 1K tone into it, into a, a dual trace oscilloscope. So you could see both left and right signal. And you'd have to like bend and maneuver the opto cells and LEDs until those lines matched. Now you were golden or the tolerance of the machine a quarter dB out or something. So I kept hammering, Ted, Ted, can we do something that has dual outputs on the front panel instead of one output knob? Do dual outputs. This way we can at least line it up easily and make sure that, you know, between the left and the right balance, it's not off because people were complaining about that. Well, it makes sense. So you're using... One to one control, one output control, and so left and right. Yeah, there's absolutely no way of 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 altering it, as you say, without dismantling it. Is yeah, you can. That makes sense. Sorry, continue. <laughs> and you also you also have the tolerance of the pot. There's a difference between you know the wipes, okay, because you know everything is done on that substrate material, and as the electric contact goes over the substrate material, it's going over doing it. And, you know, the, the pot may be a 5% tolerance pot, which means five, five that way, five this way, up 10%. You know, so you have these variables. And, I, you know, I, I really didn't want to change the sound of the device, but we needed some help. 
So Ted got this bright idea to develop this box called the SC 2.2. This was going to be better than the SC 2, and it would have the dual outputs. The original design had two PC boards with a ribbon connector that linked them. This was now a one-piece board, okay? And it was kind of laid out the same and everything else, except for the dual outputs that you could change. Everything else was still the same one-gang pot. Didn't sound the same. <laughs> and the battle was go back to the SC2. Um, and... I don't know. I think Ted's mind just started to, he wanted to do other things. Okay. I want to create this thing called the fat head and it's got a foot switch. So for guitar players to engage in and out and the foot switch was a very cheap toggle switch. And we had a lot of mechanical failures. I want to develop the SC three, this digital uh, SC, uh, digital compressor with a, a digital converter card on the back, which failed miserably and <laughs> had all these issues. And ultimately, the um, I guess the the monies, yeah, he's, he they were buying cars and all these other things, and they spent a lot of money. And he got into trouble, basically, is what happened. And he wasn't really paying the HMRC or the withholding taxes from the pay from the employees. And of course, as you know, that's a big no-no. Yes. And he, I remember the day he called me and he says, look, uh, I, uh, I'm in trouble. And, you know, this, that, this, that. And uh, I don't know that I continue unless you bail me out. And I'm like, I'm not going to bail. I didn't say this to him. Yeah. But after listening to all the monies, I said, you know, I'm not going to do that because I already had now studio projects. And studio projects became very successful very quick. Because back then, I mean, now there's 80 companies, you know, importing microphones from China. Only my microphone was not imported out of their catalog. I have a mic designer. We designed that mic together. We had it built over there, which we freely admitted. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it was a, it, I was one of the first mic manufacturers from China, you know, that was different. And, yes. you know, hey, don't don't knock over your $5,000 Neumann in the, in the studio or an overhead where the guy hits it with a drumstick or, or smokes on it. So, Put this up. It sounds great. And if it falls down, so what? You buy another one. <laughs> So studio projects was doing well. So my thought was, you know what, Ted, I'm sorry, but I, I, I'm not going to do that. I was just going to recreate Joe Meek under the studio projects banner. Yeah, I was going to change some things around. Obviously, I wasn't going to copy him. Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to change some things around and make studio projects electronics. After all, I was already making this thing called the VTB1, which was a tube output uh, mic pre that was doing well. I figured I could do this. But I didn't do it. And then eventually, I got a call one day from a company in England. Um, they were a liquidation company. Okay. And they, they introduced themselves and they said, uh, I don't even remember the name of the company. But they said, uh, we represent a company 
um, and we were going through their records. They're in liquidation now. And we see that in all the documents that they supplied us, that you were like the major player of purchasing all this stuff. I go, yes. So, well, we have to liquidate this company. So we would like to know if you would like to offer a bid for this company. And I was like, well, I, I, I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> she goes, oh, really? Because you do so much. I said, well, I did. I, I, I could have, if he had run his business correct. But she goes, well, look, I just want to let you know it's a silent auction. I go, what do you mean? She says, well, on a piece of letterhead, send me your bid over fax. And whoever has the highest bid wins. <laughs> so I thought about it for a moment. And then I, I thought, seems to be a waste of, and it was a lot of money in advertising. I was in seven major magazines every month with full page ads. So I said, maybe I should just bid on it. What the heck? So I typed up a letterhead. I put my offer on the thing. I faxed it over to the company and I never heard anything. So I figured obviously someone bid it higher and someone's going to buy Joe Meek and okay. So maybe they'll approach me if they still want me to distribute it or not. I'm going with the studio projects thing that I want to do because why would I want to get a small piece of something that I'm just a distributor if I can have my own? I, I owned studio projects. It was months later, I got a phone call from someone. Hi, this is so-and-so from the um, liquidator's office. I go, oh, well, what, what can I do for you? I just wanted to call and congratulate you. Uh, you've won the bid, and you are now the owner of Fletcher Electroacoustics. Now, I'm leaving out something which I'll touch on. We'll see if you want to go back to it. At the time, Malcolm Toft was bought by Fletcher Electroacoustics. Okay. So Fletcher Electroacoustics, um, he owned MTA because mm -hmm. he bought MTA. So I get these documents. I so, also so sorry own, to interrupt you, but MTA is Malcolm Toft Audio. Just for anybody who that's yeah. correct. <laughs> yeah, right. And of course. In 1988, when uh, uh, Trident was officially uh, sold to rely on, um, Malcolm had to go into something else. And that's when he started MTA. Okay. So, and he was making Trident-like boards under the MTA banner. This is answering and questions that I... I had. I mean, even speaking to Malcolm, that history was a bit murky for me. And um, mm -hmm. that makes sense now that you've cleared it up. It all sort of... Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, if, if, you'll, if you'll remember this point about the purchase contract, I will go back. Yeah. <laughs> Bec because when, uh, when Malcolm, uh, when Ted Fletcher bought MTA, brought Malcolm in, this is before Ted actually did fold, um, says, well, look, I bought Matt and we're going to do all these consoles. And I was like, are you crazy? What, are you crazy? No one is buying analog consoles now. Everybody's working in the box. Okay. I said, I know Malcolm. I said, but uh, 
we should we should do something else. And how I know Malcolm was during my repping days, I was at a show where Malcolm was displaying Trident. And I went up to him and I said, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm one of the top reps in the country. And I would like to represent your product. And he was kind of laughing at me. <laughs> we have our own stuff. Blah, 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 blah. Go shoo away, little boy. <laughs> and okay, all right. So what? And the funny part is, is of course, the people that he had were the ones that bankrupted him. And because they, they were spending all his money and not paying him. And then I remember years later, he started MTN. I remember when I was doing Joe Meek very successfully, Ted brought Malcolm into the my booth. Malcolm comes up to me. Oh, hello. I've heard very good things about you. I'm Malcolm Toft. I represent, and so now I'm like this. <laughs> so for all of you out, for all of you out there who don't understand what I'm doing, I, I put a very uh, a posturing pose, you know, of, of, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, uh, <laughs> and so he goes, I have these, this product line and blah, blah, blah. I go, let me interrupt you here. You don't remember me, do you? Uh, he goes, uh, no, I'm sorry. I don't have, we met before. So yeah, I, I mentioned the year because then I remembered, I don't remember what it was. At an AES show, I came up and I approached you uh, about, repping your line. And I was telling you that the people you had were not doing the kind of job that they should have been doing and that I could really do much better. I said, said, now, do you remember what you did? Well, I probably did, but I probably just moved you along. I go, yeah, you did. He goes, so I guess you're moving me along. I go, yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) And, And that was that. Okay, move forward. Ted buys MTA. This is that. I fly over. I said, Ted, don't make it. Hold on. I fly over to England, sit down. Malcolm and I meet again, and we kind of rehab. Okay, let bygones be bygones. We shook hands. I said, Ted, what you have to do is bring back the association with Malcolm Trident. I said, he's got MTA. Let's create something called Trident MTA. Trident hyphen MTA. I said, we can get a license to use Trident from David Stocks. We did. We got the license. And I said, let's bring out a replica of the, of the A range in a rack mount. Let's bring a replica of the ADB in a rack mount. Malcolm had this stuff that he did called the IX1, which was a 16-channel line mixer. He had the Signature 1 and Signature 2, which was a mic pre-EQ or just dedicated EQ. He had a couple of things. And I said, well, we can create this Trident MTA brand and have five or six devices and, and do this fairly quickly. Now, in hindsight, as I say this, I should have realized, Ted said, okay, but you'll have to fund it. You know, I should have known that was the beginning of his money issues. But I said, you know what? Oh, that, that's fine. I'll fund it. But here's how I'll fund it. You know, I'm not doing this or this. I'm paying for the parts. I'm paying for this, paying for the labor. Then you're going to ship me these products. So Trident MTA was born and started doing okay. There were a few issues because Ed Fletcher des- des- 
designed the A-range portion of it. Malcolm did the ADB. And, you know, Malcolm, God bless him, he's not a trained designer. Okay. He's, he was a hobbyist, he was mm-hmm. a very good hobbyist. And he could put circuits together from schematics. So he would take the old schematics and lay them out on the computer and lay out the boards and stuff. But if he designed something in that became an issue, he wasn't really the guy that knew how to fix it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so tried MTA. So like I say, so I got this contract from this person I bought out. Ted Fletcher Electroacoustics, Joe Meek, Trident MTA, and acquired the license for Trident. Now, along the way at a trade show, uh, I believe it was in, in, in Frankfurt, Malcolm and I were hanging out, uh, and I went out, and we became good friends by then. I said, hey, you want to go to, uh, um, got the name of the town, in uh, Sachsenhausen, in, in, outside of Frankfurt. We're going to go for dinner. He goes, no, I have this big, important meeting with uh, Ted, uh, and he wants me there. So I said, okay. So I went back to my studio projects booth. I don't know, 30, 40 minutes later, he comes by. He says, well, I was just nicked out of dinner. I'm not allowed to come, so we can do dinner. I said, oh, all right, cool. So we went out to dinner, and I'll try and speed this along because I I know I'm long-winded. That's from being from New York. Uh, He goes, I got to tell you, I'm not really happy with what I'm doing. And, you know, they they treat me like a child. I go get my coffee. They won't allow me to walk over the rug to my office with the coffee. I have to drink it at the play. He says, I'm just not happy. And he's not honoring the, the deals of the buyout of MTA. So over the course of the next few days, I told Malcolm, I said, well, look, I will offer you something, but you have to quit first. I said, I'm not going to talk to you until you say you've left Ed Fletcher. I said, that's not the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It was a couple of months later. He gets in touch with me. He says, okay, I've done it. I've left. I fly over to England. Malcolm, his ex-wife, Marion, and him, we sit down. And I... Had a lot of time to think of it, so I hashed out this plan. Here's my plan. I want to create a new brand. We're going to call it Toft Audio Designs. Okay? And he goes, why Toft Audio Designs? A couple of reasons. A, it's your name. Toft Audio Designs is TAD. What's Trident Audio Developments? (laughs) TAD. Okay? The association. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I said, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. Blah, blah, blah. So we start getting to work on this project. And those were the silver-faced rack mount units. Mm-hmm. When I had realized that analog consoles were starting to come back, Greg Mackey was with the 8-Bus, the Allen and Heath were starting to resurge. Things were happening. I brought up a console. Now, no, nobody, nobody do consoles. We're not going to do consoles. Anyway, things started developing. And I offered Malcolm, I said, Malcolm, you want to be a partner in the company? You can be partner. It's your name. He goes, I don't want anything to do with any company. All I do is bankrupt companies. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want any ownership. I said, are you sure? He goes, yeah, I'll just want to work for you. I said, okay. So I owned Toft. 
And um, so I financed this whole thing. We got the products out. Things started doing well. I started pushing them on the console. I got the rumor that Greg Mackey was going to discontinue his eight bus analog console, which would leave a huge hole in the market. So I pressed Malcolm and pressed Malcolm and pressed Malcolm. Eventually he caved in and we created together the workflow, the layout of what the ATB was going to be, which morphed over time because I would then go to certain friends that I trusted and said, look, this is where we're at now. Now nah, you got to add this on. It's got to have this. You really need to do blah, 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 blah. So it ended up morphing from a, a small desktop thing to a larger mid-size console. And of course, Toft did very well. Mm -hmm. And along the way, I hired a guy named Alan Bradford, who was a designer. Alan designed all the CLM dynamic stuff. He also did the time machine uh, and a, a few other products. Uh, but then Alan came to me, said, you know, my old company is for sale, CLM Dynamics. So I bought it. <laughs> uh, we, we, we didn't really do anything with it until just recently. Tried now, brought out this thing called the Hilo which are these uh, variable high and low pass dynamically tracking filters from the CLM uh, ex expounder. But things were humming along and doing extremely well. Um, I opened up a huge facility in the UK. I own Joe Meek now. Uh, I own Toft Audio. I own Studio Projects. Things were just humming along. And then I remember... Trident came up for some odd reason and wonder what they're doing. Give, so I was told, Mountain, give David a call. We gave David a call. David was the legitimate owner of Trident Audio Developers. He had all the purchase agreements uh, and everything. There was another guy who was ripping it off at the time, and I'm not going to go there. So okay. I'll, just, I'll just say that. <laughs> um, and um, so Malcolm says, yeah, you ought to talk to David. So I did. And David was like, would you buy it? Please, please, would you please buy it? Just please buy it? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, look, it's going to be a really costly endeavor for me because I don't want to buy it just to sit on it like I did with CLM Dynamics. If I buy Trident, I want to try and bring Trident back. Mm -hmm. I ended up negotiating with him and I got Trident for the price of a halfway decent used car. <laughs> I mean, I was almost, I was almost embarrassed paying that little for the company, but I also knew what I was going to have to do. Mm -hmm. And it was a long haul. Uh, the economy shifted for a period of time and, um, other manufacturers were coming into the fold. 20 more microphone manufactured by Studio Project sales was sliding. Joe Meek was being taken over by Avalon and some other things. And, um, you know, uh, things were just changing. And so Malcolm and I, uh, I had to tighten up on some reins for a little bit. And I said, 
I said to all the employees, guys, I'm going to have to pull your salaries back for a few months till we weather the storm. But then I will not only go back to the old salary, along the way, as, as things change, I'll start increasing the money. And it's exactly what happened. We weathered the storm, things were happening, and I was starting to pay more, starting to pay back. But I think Malcolm was disillusioned because of a sales guy that I had hired who was feeding him some misinformation and convinced Malcolm to become partners and start another company called Ocean Audio. Mm -hmm. Well, if it was all done on the up and up and nicely, I really wouldn't have had an issue with it. I would have congratulated Goyero, but it wasn't done on an up and up. And it ended up pretty poorly. And uh, I had to terminate both of their contracts. And um, from there, Trident was our own. I ended up hiring one of the original real EEs from Trident, a guy named Taz Bogle. He worked there in the late 80s through the early 90s, up and through with David Stotts on the Vector. But he worked on the uh, on the uh, TSM, the Trident 65, the Deanne, a bunch of other projects. So he really knew what Trident was about. Mm -hmm. So I was very happy to have him on board. And then since then, we've just we've developed Trident with, you know, new consoles, new manufacturing methods, you know, better ways to service in a time where there are no more maintenance engineers, you know, like they used to be in the old days that took care of the consoles. Now it's the, the guy, he takes care of it. So, you know, the design and assembly had to be in such a, if there was a problem, how quick can we do this? And with how the least amount of pain, you know, gee, if I could fix this with just a screw roll by taking this component, this part out and sticking the replacement part in and just putting it back together because it's all modular, that would be great. And that's what we did. And we've done very well. Now we've even gone into software plugins. Yeah, I spotted. I mean, that's a, I mean, that's clearly. So I'm just going to switch my light on. Sure, go ahead. Sitting dark. There we are. <laughs> um, I mean, that's clearly where, where the market's going. Uh, but oh, yeah. there's also... There is also a hark back to, to, to sort of a, a, analog things too, which is you know that's part that's my my deal. That's the thing I'm into. So there we go, part one of my conversation with Alan Hyatt. Uh, you can definitely tell he has the gift of the gab, I'm sure now. <laughs> um, okay, so I forgot to tell you in the introduction that my isolated drum stems this week, uh, I want to tell you from Revolver. I think I've done nearly everything off Revolver now. So you can check that out at allyouneedisdrums.com. You can also contact me through that website. And so that just leaves me to say a big thank you to Joe Kane and David Henshaw for the artwork and the intro and outro music. And I hope you'll have a lovely week. I will speak to you next Tuesday. Goodbye.